Well, I wonder when you've uh, felt like you're on the outside looking in. Um, Cole Chisel sang a song about that. Uh, that was a song about standing on the outside of financial security and uh, looking in at others who have plenty of money and uh, kind of what it's like to feel like an outsider from that circle. Uh, there might be lots of ways that we feel like outsiders. Um, but I wonder when you felt like an outsider because of being a Christian. Uh, maybe you felt like that when you've been made fun of because of your beliefs about God or about Jesus. Uh, maybe you felt like an outsider when you've been excluded because of your values, because you refuse to go along with the group. Uh, maybe it's just a unspoken kind of general feeling among a group of friends or maybe in your family that you don't quite belong. Uh, when have you felt like an, you're on the outside looking in? Uh, we do live now in Australia, I think in a time and culture when there is more vocal opposition toward Christianity than in previous years. And so I think it's not surprising that we might feel at times like we are a bit on the outer a bit like we don't belong, uh, specifically because of our faith in Jesus. Which is why I think 1 Peter is such a great book of the Bible for us to be looking at together. Um, because it's a letter that is written to believers who are really feeling vulnerable and feeling a bit out of place in the culture around them. Uh, and as we'll see, it's a letter that is written to remind them and, and to remind us of where our true home is, of where our, our true place of belonging is. That it is not in this world and being embraced by it, but our true home is with God and with what he has promised us. So 1 Peter is a letter written to remind us that while we, we might feel like outsiders as we live now in this world, well, 1 Peter will remind us of the security and safety that are ours as we belong to God and Peter writes to urge us to stand firm in that, to stand firm in all that we have received by God's grace. So we're um, beginning this series in 1 Peter today, and we're going to be spending most of the term uh, looking through this letter. But as we begin, just a couple of things to orient us. First of all, who it is that writes this letter? You see that in verse 1. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, so this is the same Peter who we know from the Gospels, uh, the disciple of Jesus, um, he writes, of course, as one who knew Jesus, who saw Jesus, who uh, spent those three years uh, with him. Uh, this is the Peter as well who denied Jesus. Uh, but then after uh, he was raised from the dead, Jesus uh, reinstated Peter and uh, told him that he would be the, the leader of his church. And so after Jesus ascended to heaven, well, Peter does become the leader of the church in Jerusalem and uh, we read about his ministry through the book of Acts. So that's the Peter who writes this letter. But I want you to jump right to the very end. Uh, just turn over in your Bibles to chapter 5, to the, the last uh, couple of verses there. Um, so in chapter 5, verse 12, um, as Peter signs off here, well, he says that he has written with the help of Silas, a faithful brother... Um, and so Silas there has probably been the one, has probably been Peter's scribe uh, who has helped Peter to pen this letter. But then in verse 13, there's this kind of cryptic little verse where he says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, as does my son Mark. 
Now, that's probably a, a clue as to where Peter is writing from when he writes this letter. And most likely Babylon is a bit of a code word for Rome. Uh, so most people think that Peter is in, in Rome when he writes this letter and she who is in Babylon is the church in Rome, sending greetings to these churches uh, who received the letter. And uh, Mark, who's mentioned there, we know from other parts of the New Testament, was in Rome on several occasions. So Peter's the author. Um, he's writing from Rome. Uh, most likely it's the early 60s of the first century, uh, Nero is the emperor, he's the Roman emperor at the time and it's probably written just before some major persecution against the Christians breaks out which we know happened in 64 AD. Um, so that's a bit of background. Uh, come back to chapter 1 uh, and what we notice straight away is that Peter actually has much more to say about the recipients of the letter than uh, who it is from. So take a look there again. This is who it is that he writes to. Uh, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So who's the letter written to? We notice that phrase there, it is to God's elect exiles. Uh, he writes to believers who are scattered through a whole bunch of Roman provinces here in Asia Minor. Um, these are all now modern-day Western Turkey, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. And these churches are, are made up of uh, Jews and Gentiles. And you can kind of piece together from the New Testament how the gospel uh, would have made its way uh, to these places, um, really after Peter's first sermon on, um, on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Uh, if you remember in Acts 2, it's the, it's the day that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and uh, Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd, explains what they're seeing and hearing. And in that crowd, we're told that there are Jews who have come from all of these different places. And so on that day, they hear Peter speak about Jesus, about his death and resurrection, and were told there that they were cut to the heart. And the 3,000 people that day believed. And then after that, they went back to these places, carrying the message of the gospel with them. And so now, a few decades later, well, Peter writes to these believers, and notice how he describes them as God's elect exiles. And I think that that is a really helpful little phrase as we think about who we are as God's people, that we are God's elect exiles. What does that mean? Well, firstly, what does it mean to be an exile? It means that we're not living in our true home. Um, in the Old Testament, you know, God's people, you remember, lived for 70 years as exiles in Babylon. Uh, they were living in a, a place that was foreign to them. It was, it was not their true home. And as they lived there, there was uh, pressure from the culture around them to conform to its values uh, rather than keeping their allegiance to God. And that's how Peter describes us as Christians as we live now in the world. We are exiles here. 
And uh, similar words that he'll use through this letter, and you might like to just look at these verses, uh, he'll also call us foreigners. Uh, Sometimes the word is translated strangers or aliens or sojourners. So in 1 verse 17, uh, just over the page, he says, uh, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And then in uh, 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You see how Peter is describing the believers in this way, that this world is not our permanent residence. This is temporary. We are foreigners here because our our real home, our real place of belonging is with God in heaven. I don't know if you've uh, seen this kind of advertising, but if you look on um, realestate.com or Domain or any of those, I mean, sometimes you read... Uh, advertising of a house for sale and it'll say, could this be your forever home? Well, Peter wants to say no. (laughs) It doesn't matter how many bedrooms or bathrooms or how nice it is, nothing here is going to be our forever home. We are exiles here. We are sojourners. We're passing through. Now, one of the things that being an exile will mean for us is that at times we will feel like we don't belong here. But that's because we belong somewhere else. We belong to God. And and that's the other part of how Peter describes us here. We are exiles, yes, but we are God's elect exiles. And our belonging to God is further described here in verse 2. So Peter says that we are those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now this is really describing the mechanism of how we have come to belong to God. And it's a very dense little verse, isn't it? God the Father, in his foreknowledge, chose us to be his. And God the Holy Spirit has worked in us to sanctify us, that is to set us apart as God's special people. And through the Father and the Spirit, we have now been brought to God the Son, Jesus Christ. We have been sprinkled with his blood, bringing us forgiveness and bringing us into a relationship with God, now made alive, now alive to to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. So just like Israel in the Old Testament were God's elect nation, his covenant people, well now we through the gospel, we are God's new covenant people. We've been rescued from our old home of sin and slavery. We've been made new by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and we're being now led through this life to our true home, which is to come. It's a very rich couple of verses that begin this letter. And I want you to hold on to that description of who we are as God's people, that we are strangers and exiles in this world, which means that we won't always feel at home here, but we are God's elect exiles, and so we have our true home with him. And having begun the letter by describing who we are as God's people, well, Peter then continues by describing 
more about where our true home lies. So as we keep reading, we're now told about our future home, our promised inheritance which cannot be taken away. So pick it up there again in verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So while in this world we are foreigners and exiles, well, Peter reminds us of our true home the promised inheritance which awaits us in heaven. And he uses really a bunch of different phrases to to fill out uh, the picture of what this future inheritance is like. In verse 3, he calls it our our living hope. In verse 4, an imperishable inheritance. In verse 5, it's the coming salvation to be revealed in the last time. Uh, If you look down to verse 9, he speaks there of it as the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And this is what Peter here praises God for, that this is what God in his mercy has promised us. And we notice here that this is how how our inheritance is made available to us, that it comes to us as a gift of God's mercy. It's not because of anything that we have done. Instead, the first step is that the Christian is born again or experiences a, a new birth. And like when you're born physically into the world, I mean, you didn't do anything to earn that. Well, so also with our spiritual birth. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And this new birth then opens up for us a new life and a new future, which Peter calls our living hope. And our new life is guaranteed and made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just as Jesus was raised to new life with glory to come, so also all Christians, all who are united to him by faith, are raised to new life with future glory to come. And that future, verse 4, is described as an inheritance, a secure inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. It's not an inheritance that can be lost in a financial crash or squandered through bad decisions. It's not an inheritance that can be spent by others. Maybe you've seen on the back of caravans sometimes pictures like this saying, spending the kids' inheritance. Uh, maybe you've got a T-shirt that says that. But what, what Peter says here is that like what Jesus teaches about why we should store up treasures in heaven is because there our inheritance is kept safe. It won't perish or spoil or fade. Moth and rust won't wreck it. Thieves won't break in and take it away because God is keeping it for us, ready to be revealed on the day when the Lord Jesus returns. But not only is God keeping the inheritance safe for us, we're also told here that God is keeping us safe for the inheritance. So keep reading now from verse 5, where Peter says this. He says, This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is what God is doing for his exiles 
now scattered through the world. He's keeping our inheritance safe for us in heaven, but he's also protecting and shielding his people until they receive their inheritance. Now, what does that shielding and protecting look like? Does it mean that God keeps us from all of life's troubles and difficulties? Well, no, it's actually by going through trials that God ensures that we make it to our inheritance. Because it is by going through trials that God grows and strengthens our faith. That's what Peter says as he continues, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now this might be a little surprising to us, but trials and difficulties and struggles are God's way of strengthening our faith in him. It's a bit like going to the gym and doing the hard work of exercise to build up your strength. And so also our faith is, is built up and strengthened by needing to exercise the spiritual muscles of trusting God through difficult times. And I'm sure that many of us can relate to that. Maybe you've seen that in, in friends as well. How it's often through hard times that we, we do look to God more that we stop relying on our own strength and we start looking to him. And that refines our faith. It shows that it's genuine. And it's through growing our faith in this way that God guards and protects his people so that they will finally receive their inheritance. And that's why Peter can say here that we rejoice. See, it's not in the trials themselves that we rejoice, but rather in verse 8, we rejoice in Jesus. We love him and rejoice in him because we know that it is in him and through his resurrection that we have hope for a world to come where there will be no more trials or troubles or suffering or pain. That is what God is storing up for us. A hope that is living and enduring, unfading and imperishable. And through this life he is strengthening our faith so that we continue to move toward that goal the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, of course, when we're in the middle of trials or suffering, it can be very hard to see that. I think it's often, you know, once we've come out the other side and we look back that we can see more clearly what God was doing. And for any believers here who might be reading this and who have thought, well, maybe their sufferings and trials meant that God had actually forgotten them or didn't care about them, Well, the last verses of this opening section actually highlight for us just how privileged we are to be God's people, to be those who know the gospel and who follow in the footsteps of Jesus. See, from verse 10 now, Peter starts to speak about really the whole broad sweep of God's plan of salvation and of how we who have heard the gospel are at the very centre of God's great plan. So verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. So Peter's saying here that the prophets of the Old Testament, 
Well, they spoke about, they predicted the salvation that was to come. We know that, don't we, as we go back and read the Old Testament. But they never fully understood the message, even their own message as they wrote it down. They didn't, they didn't know the, the full identity of the Messiah. They didn't know when he would arrive. And they didn't fully understand how God's plan to save a people for himself would come about. Even as they wrote it, it was a mystery about how the Messiah would experience both suffering and glory. And I mean, think back to some of the famous passages from the Old Testament, like Isaiah, who wrote about the suffering servant. Or the psalmist in Psalm 2 who wrote about the Messiah who would rule the nations with an iron scepter. I mean, what these prophets didn't understand was that the suffering servant and the conquering Messiah would be one and the same. But this is what the Holy Spirit was pointing to, that this is how our salvation would come through the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And so Peter is saying here, well, do do you see what a privileged position we are in to be those who have heard the gospel, to be those who know the Lord Jesus and to know what he has done in his suffering for us and his ascension to glory? I mean, I think sometimes we can think, I mean, wouldn't it be great to have known God the way Isaiah did? Or to have a relationship with God the way David did? But Peter says here that those prophets, well, they would actually love to be in our shoes. Because we are the ones who have had revealed to us what they only ever knew in part. See, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. See, friends, Peter's readers here, they may have been scattered exiles through these Roman provinces. They may have been undergoing all kinds of trials and facing pressure from the culture around them, probably feeling fairly insignificant and insecure, But what Peter wants them to know is that they are actually at the very centre of God's great plans for the world. They are the ones who, in his great mercy, have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And nearly 2,000 years later, scattered to places like Wagga Wagga, Australia, Well, so are we. For we have had the gospel made known to us, the gospel that even angels long to look into. And what that means, I take it, is not that the angels haven't heard the gospel, but that they just love to look into the gospel, that they can't get enough of it. It's the same word that's used when the gospel writers describe how the disciples... Uh, stare into the empty tomb. It means to, to stare or to look intently. They, they stare into it with wonder and amazement. It's what the angels do. They're amazed that this was God's plan of salvation. This is how he did it. This is how full of mercy he is that he sent his own son who would suffer for the sins of the world. 
and then be raised in glory. And as those who now belong to Jesus, will we now follow the same pattern of life that he set before us? The pattern of suffering before glory. Which means that in this life we may experience grief in all kinds of trials. But suffering that we experience along the way is for the purpose of strengthening our faith as we look to the inheritance kept in heaven that can never perish, spoil or fade. So friends, this week if you find yourself feeling like an outsider in the world around you, well I think Peter in this passage has given us some wonderful things to remember. Firstly, to remember who we are. Remember that you are God's elect. Remember that you do belong, you belong to him. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Remember who you are. And second, remember where you belong. That we are strangers and exiles here. This is not our true home. Instead, we rejoice as we remember that we have a living hope, an eternal inheritance kept in heaven, which is guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And third, remember this week what you've been given. It is in his great mercy that we have been given a new birth into a living hope. The salvation that we have received, the the prophets, the angels, they long to look into these things. And that's what we need to be doing as well. We need to keep looking into this gospel, this gospel of what Jesus in his kindness has done for us. Because as Peter says, though we do not now see him, as we believe in him, we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So let me pray that God might help us to remember those things this week. Father God, we do thank you for uh, this part of your word to us and we join with Peter in praising you as we are reminded of all that you have done for us. We praise you for your mercy in giving us new birth into a living hope. We thank you for who you have called us to be and that you have called us to belong to you. And Father, I pray that this hope that you have given us may guide us and fill us with joy in the week ahead. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.